baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you, as always, for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. If you are on social media at all, Facebook, Twitter, check in Google for news, odds are your favorite platform was the target of a first-rate grilling this past week in Washington, D.C. Representatives from Google, Facebook, and Twitter will call to testify before Congress about their platforms being used by Russia in a disinformation campaign that likely influenced the 2016 presidential election. Were you the target of any of those ads or postings? Might they have influenced your choice? How do you as a content consumer tell if what you're reading or passing along to your online friends and followers is legitimate or truthful? And who should be responsible for this, if anyone? Does it all fall under free speech? Should it be legislated? Or should the private, for-profit social media firms be liable for how their product is used? Well, we brought in both of KCBS's Voices of Knowledge on this front for this week's In-Depth. CNED Executive Editor Ian Schur, who joins us each weekday at 1.50 p.m., and KCBS and CBS Technology Analyst Larry Maggot, who you can hear every weekday afternoon at 3.50 p.m. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time today. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. Let's start with a quick uh, rundown, just so everybody's on the same page of, of the problem areas here, and, and some verbiage. So, what's a bot? Well, a bot is an automated way of sending out information. It could send out software. Bots are used to distribute malware, but they can also be used to distribute tweets or, I suppose, Facebook posts. And it's just a machine that's acting as if it's a human, but much, much more uh, efficient in that, in that bots can send out potentially millions of posts or ads or pieces of malware in a matter of minutes. And a troll. So a troll is uh, it's much more interesting sometimes. These are often human beings who really want to stir the pot. They want to get under, uh, get involved in a, a political issue or whatever, and really take a side that's going to get everyone angry. That is the ultimate goal of a troll, is not to make a political point, but rather to just get you riled up. Can a troll use bots to multiply their impact? They absolutely can, yeah. and that's part of what we've learned. Uh, we actually had a story on CNN about how you how Russian uh, instigators were using uh, a series of different things people uh, trolls and then bots to get their messages out so far and so fast that people including Donald Trump jr the president's son would retweet them and respond mm -hmm. to them yeah and a troll can be an individual mm -hmm. but it can also be what's called a troll farm which is basically a big building full of individuals who are paid to go out there and troll they may not be trolls by nature but that's their profession is to go out and cause trouble. Is it just scattershot or how do they know whom to target, how to target them, and is that where we're looking at possible cooperation from inside the U.S.? Well, actually, that's one of the things I think that Robert Mueller is looking into is how is it that these Russian trolls or 
bot masters or whatever you want to call them, were so good at targeting people in social media because it appears as if they had some kind of not so much inside information, but more like insight or understanding of A, our political system, B, what are the kind of hot button issues in America over race and gender and uh, ethnicity and religion. They kind of knew exactly what buttons to push and they knew where to push them. So the, the answer is that, yes, a troll can, can, can be scattershot. That's one approach, but a much more effective approach is to go into a community online and really rile people up who are susceptible because they have strong positions one way or the other or the opposite because they're exploring positions one way or the other. That's the most efficient way, and they appear to have been pretty good at that. A great example of that actually was during the uh, as the as the NFL season was starting up, uh, there was actually evidence that both sides of that debate, you know, both the you know Stander Neal and all of that, were being influenced by these these trolls and these bot farms. And so it's really fascinating that you may have been on either side of that mm-hmm. debate and touched by this effect on the internet. And that's really fascinating to me. And another example is there was a rally that was held, I believe it was in Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were two rallies. One was anti-Muslim mm-hmm. and the other was yes. pro-Muslim, both on the same day at the same time. Now, why would you do that other than to create a conflict in a potential uh, violent potential situation? That was an example where they weren't taking one side or another. They were taking both sides strictly to get people riled up. And it's worth noting that rally was promoted by what are now to believe to be uh, Russian propagandists. So mm-hmm. it's it's actually creating these things to happen, not just stirring the pot and making it worse. Yeah. So there are two uh, end games here. One was influencing political races, including the president's mm-hmm. race, the presidency, uh, and then there's just sowing discord, right. the divide and conquer. I think I would recognize it myself being just in the information game, but I don't know for sure. Right. And so how do people know, or is that, this is the big issue, right, is the lack of transparency. And we can talk about that with the paid ads where these social media companies are making money. Mm-hmm. But what about folks who just go on and post something? It's sometimes difficult because there are times when I've looked at a post and I couldn't tell for sure whether they were being sincere and just idiotic or whether they were being deliberately provocative. But certainly if you follow where the posts lead you, often to a link, often to a web page, often to what appears to be a news story, and you look at it with critical eyes, you can often tell. Uh, for example, A, you may have never heard of that publication. One of the things I like to do is I use my, if I'm on a desktop, I highlight some text and I right-click it. That will bring up Google. I will search on a string of text and I'll see what happens. It may turn out that there's a hundred other publications I've never heard of that are using exactly the same text, which tells me it's some kind of a, a essentially spam. Or the other is it might lead me to Snopes.com or PolitiFact or one of the fact-checking sites that will talk about it and debunk it. Or theoretically, maybe it'll lead me to the New York Times and it'll show me that it's true. But But trying to dig deeper before you believe it and more important, before you spread it, before you share it or like it, or in any way uh, proliferate it it, beyond uh, where it is already with your own reputation and your own group. And I respect the the struggle here, which is that, you know, confirmation bias is a huge thing, right? I want something to be true so much. And so if I get an article that ultimately turns out to be fake, 
But, I, you know, I want it to be so true and I don't go through the trouble of finding out and I'll share it to all my friends. That's what is happening here a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a great example was during the election time, there was that story that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump. Right. And, uh, you know, of course, the Pope came out Absurd. later and said that wasn't true. But at the time, so many people were sharing it. And by the way, a lot of the stuff happening on, on Facebook and Twitter, it's not paid. This stuff is shared by you and me, a vast majority of it, because of that confirmation bias, of us wanting this to be so true. We don't look. We don't check. We don't do what Larry's recommending. We just go and we post it all over the place because we want that to be the story that everyone remembers. Mm -hmm. I want to get to responsibility in a moment, shared responsibility. But I'd like to ask a little bit more about how this actually happens. Some of the senators who were grilling these folks uh, this past week talked about changing algorithms mm-hmm. and and that seemed to be trained mostly on Facebook so explain how we see what we see and I know in 30 seconds not yeah. that that's a tall order do we uh, have a couple hours exactly <laughs> well, one of the but you know why do I have to keep going on there and saying I want to see the most recent yeah. things first one of the reasons I'm laughing is these are kind of closely held secrets I don't know what algorithm Facebook uses I all I know is that what I see on Facebook isn't necessarily what my friends are posting in the order they're posting it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to. I'm not saying I'm seeing stuff that my friends don't post, but my friends could post something, and I may never see it. And there are all of these algorithms based on what they calculate is your proximity to that person, your shared interest to that person. Have you ever uh, commented or liked what they've posted? Those are all kinds of signals, but there are many that we, I, we may not be aware of that tend to share show us what we're going to see on Facebook because we're not seeing it all. That's for sure. And, and what I find interesting is Facebook, there's this there's this kind of thread about Facebook that it knows more about you than you do. <laughs> and, and actually, if you go in, there's a setting called Ad Preferences, which uh, we have an instruction side, another thing on Cena to show you. You can actually find out what Facebook thinks your political points of view are, even if you've never told it. I don't say what my politics are on Facebook. I don't I don't say what I'm registered as. I'm very careful because I'm a reporter. Mm-hmm. But it believes it knows what my politics are just based upon what I like, what I comment on, and what I share. And probably who your friends are as well. Uh, it, yes, my friends definitely are a part of it too. But it's interesting. There are thousands of what they call signals mm-hmm. that they use to identify you and what you like. And remember, Facebook's job is not to give you the truth. Right? Their job is to give you more of what you want all the time, so you're going to use Facebook more. And look, those two do overlap. They don't want to tell you a bunch of lies because then you're not going to trust Facebook. But that is part of what this, this kind of conversation is becoming is if they're building these programs that are perfect at drawing you in and keeping you there – you know, do those algorithms sometimes cause you to share things that are terrible? Because that's what brings you back. So as we then shift into responsibility, I, act, I asked about the uh, algorithms because if, if senators are calling for a change in mm-hmm. that, then we have to ask ourselves, all right, what is the responsibility of, of each party for paid ads, for transparency? Uh, I'm presuming that the product makers should be somewhat responsible. But for just consuming posts, you're saying everyone should be responsible for what they consume. It's really a shared responsibility. That sounds very almost trite, but I really do think that government has a role. Absolutely, the industry has a very important role. But at the end of the day, we have a role as well. What we share, what we like, 
what we, uh, how we vote, it's not really with our dollars, but how we vote with our clicks is very important. But certainly at this point, uh, government may be saying we need a level playing field between social media and broadcast media and print media. Now, I understand broadcast is in a different category because of the FCC licenses, but print and cable are in, similar to online, and print and cable have their rules. Online should have similar rules about transparency. So that seems reasonable to me. Nobody in the in Facebook has really argued against that. They haven't endorsed this, uh, this honest ads bill that's out there, but they haven't really said why they don't like it either. There's actually this uh, law called the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, and I'll spare you a lot of details, but Section 230 essentially immunizes uh, social media and online companies against certain crimes that are committed on their platform. So if Ian or I were to post something, let's say that was illegal, perhaps an image or something that was illegal uh, on Facebook, they won't necessarily be held responsible for our act, and that was put in by Congress about 20 years ago. That's being challenged right now, and there's a lot of debate and, and fighting going on as to what should be the responsibility of these services and what shouldn't be. You don't want the government controlling content. You don't want the content police saying, you must do this, 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 and this, because that gets into free speech issues that has nothing to do with the rights of the companies and has everything to do with our rights to express ourselves in social media. And, and if you look in Europe, by the way, we're seeing a lot of this stuff yes. already happen. Uh, you know, the Google, Twitter, and Facebook have all ended up in battles with governments overseas over a lot of these issues. My favorite example is Germany, where it's actually, there's an old law in the books, many decades old, you know, from the World War II era kind of reverberations, mm -hmm. where it's, uh, you have to pull down hate speech. Right. And they define hate speech, by the way, not the way you and I would if we were on the street. They define it as something that's inciting violence, right? So they say, if you don't do that, you're going to be fined millions of dollars. And so Facebook and Twitter have actually started working with the German government because, of course, they don't want to be fined all this money to try and solve these issues. But the question is, okay, what do we do here in the United States? We have different laws, obviously. We have different, you know, the First Amendment is a big issue. How do we do this stuff but still be able to stay true to what we want to be? And it's, it's unbelievably hard. I, I don't know if there's a really easy answer. If you're just joining us, we have two very knowledgeable gentlemen in technology and social media, Ian Schur, who is the CNET executive editor, and our KCBS and CBS technology analyst, Larry Maggot. We're talking about social media platforms and the Russian meddling in the election, fake news, and everything that revolves around that. I'm Jane McMillan. I did want to play a quick cut from Senator Al Franken, uh, who yesterday was talking, was trying to get to this uh, idea of responsibility. And this was, I believe, the legal counsel for Facebook who had just said, well, we think we're really good at catching, you know, fake news and things like that. Paid ads, probably not so much. In hindsight, we should have had a broader lens. There were signals we missed and we are now okay, focused. People are buying ads on your platform with rubles. They're political ads. You put billions of data points together all the time. That's what I hear that these platforms do. They're the most sophisticated things invented by man ever. <laughs> you can't put together rubles with a political ad and go like, hmm, those two data points spell out something bad. And there you go. Well, those you know, data I've, points. You were just talking yeah. about that. They So companies have the ability 
to do this stuff? Should they have to do it? They should at least look at it. Now, I've actually been to the Google office in Moscow, and they, they operate in Moscow, and they take rubles because they have a legitimate business in Moscow. However, whether you're paying by rubles or not, a foreign power is not allowed to buy an ad to influence U.S. voters. That's, that's federal law. And I agree with Senator Franken that that's certainly an indicator that they it should have at least looked at that transaction and said, hmm, something's wrong here. But look, to give them a little bit of uh, credit, I don't want to give them too much cover, but some cover, they probably were not aware of this. When these things were taking place back in, in 15, 19, 2015, 2016, Russia was not on our radar. I wasn't thinking about it. There wasn't a lot of press about it. And so I could easily see how that would have slipped by simply because they didn't think to build an algorithm Although, to look for that. in 2016 during the campaign, even then-candidate Trump and candidate Clinton were talking about, on different sides of the, you know, looking at it differently, yeah. uh, talking about Russia hacking. The DNC hacking, had been yeah. hacked. Um, it's, so is it... I'm going to let Ian jump in here, too. Is it fair to give these companies a pass when data points and collecting this information and using it to make money uh, is certainly a fine-tuned machine to not have started looking then a little earlier than now being called up on Capitol Hill at the end of 2017? I think – so let's look at this in terms of another issue they're dealing with, which is harassment. Um, you know, they have been dealing with this nonstop harassment toward women and toward minorities on their platforms, both Facebook and Twitter. And one of the things they constantly do is they kind of throw their hands up a little bit and they say, look, we're trying to do our best. We only have so many people who can look after this stuff. There's so many posts. What can we do? And of course, that's somewhat of a logical answer. But then you think, wait, these are some of the most profitable companies in the entire world. You're telling me they can't hire more people to do this? You're telling me they can't build an army of people to go after this stuff? You're telling me that they can't, you know, they're able to tell if I put up a YouTube video with Taylor Swift's music in it and they're able to pull it down, but they can't figure out if there's a political ad from a from a foreign yeah. power. These are the types of things that they that that where this argument starts to fall apart. So by by means of both disclosure and also to give you a little bit of a personal insight, I, I should point out that I'm in addition to being a journalist, also CEO of ConnectSafely.org, which works with these companies. So I'm on the safety advisory boards of Twitter, Facebook, mm -hmm. Google, Snapchat, and others. And to their credit, they do care about these issues. They do not want their platforms being used for cyberbullying and harassment. It's not good for business, aside from whatever moral issues there are. They do have people dealing with it. In some cases, in the case of Google and Facebook, thousands of people dealing with it. The problem is that it is a very, very difficult situation to, to, to solve. I mean, whether they're putting enough resources into it, whether they're doing what they could do, I'm sure that there's more they could do. I'm sure there's a lot more they could do. But some of these issues are nuanced. For example, they got a lot of negative, uh, I think with Facebook and, and YouTube, got a lot of negative publicity when beheading videos were played on their, on yes. their platform. Yet there were others who said, wait a minute, don't take those down. We put those there to, to generate outrage. We want the world to know what these monsters are doing. We want people to see these beheading videos so they get as angry as we are about these atrocities. So things that may seem obvious at one moment are a little bit nuanced, and they have to deal with these nuance. And it's, it's not always easy. It's never easy. Right. But I would agree with Ian that there's more they could do and should do and must do. Well, there's call, you know, certainly calls about what content should be exposed. And as you said rightly, nobody should get into the business of, uh, of saying what's free speech and, and what is not, although we do have some limits. Mm -hmm. But uh, Senator Franken went on during that exchange to ask the legal counsel from Facebook, 
Will you pledge right now not to take any more ads from mm-hmm. foreign governments? And there was a hedging. Yeah. Yes, they do business elsewhere around the world. So mm-hmm. that might have been a, a loaded question. But still, can, should these companies be able to say, we will make well, sure it, we will not accept ads, pay, make money from foreign governments? It, it would have been helpful if the CEO were there who could have well, actually made that Well, that's another topic we're going to talk about in a moment. Yeah. 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 I, I think that... You're starting to see that these companies are realizing they need to regulate themselves before the government comes in and does mm. it for them. And they are, they're realizing this very quick. I don't know if you noticed in the last week before these hearings happened, both Facebook and, and Twitter, and by the way, Google at the last minute, put out a bunch of new rules. Mm-hmm. They promised, for example, that every political ad will have a who paid for it thing, which is what's required by you know television and radio and on in paper. Now it's also going to happen on Facebook and Twitter because they don't want the government to force it. And the fact that really Silicon Valley is losing a lot of its kind of, you know, beautiful sheen that it had with Washington, D.C., and now it's really coming under the uh, spotlight, I think you're going to see some changes. What I keep wondering is when does the government need to step in? Or can this industry regulate itself and do the right thing on its own? You know, the video game industry faced a lot of scrutiny over the over the very, very violent games they were putting out a couple of decades ago. Mortal Kombat actually caused an entire hearing mm-hmm. on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they created the Entertainment St- Standards Ratings Board, which told people, you know, okay, this game is for mature audiences and all that. And that was enough to placate Congress. Can these companies do the same? I don't know. I mean, this is one of the crimes of the century, influencing an election. I don't know if these companies are going to be able to avoid that kind of res- that kind of response. Well, there's that, and then there's being a, a good U.S. citizen as a corporation and watching out for the welfare of the nation. But as you said, we're seeing the drive for nationalism uh, use these platforms in other countries, Spain mm-hmm. uh, and and Scotland's uh, second push for a second referendum. I'm not saying one's bad and one's good. I'm just saying these are the areas in which divisive content well, is being used. And, and as Ian pointed out, there, if this hearing happened to be in Brussels instead of Washington, D.C., then they would have wanted them to be good European citizens. And it, it's okay, yes, you happen to be California, but these companies are global, and they have to think about how they operate in a global world, uh, global political and economic world. And, and sometimes there are conflicts between the values of different different countries and different cultures. And I'll throw in one other thing, which is that, you know, one thing I hear constantly when I'm talking to people from these companies is that there's this trend where the companies see a difference between the product they're building, as in Facebook, the website, and the people who are on it, you and me. And they they see more trouble with the people on it than what they've built. And I'm not saying they're right. And in fact, many people would argue they're wrong. But it's very interesting that they, they're they kind of singularly focused on, let's build the best algorithm. Let's make sure it's easy to share. How easy, you know, how much more will they share if we do this and that? And they're not thinking about the other stuff because they're like, oh, no, that's human culture problems. You know, I wrote a column this week in the Mercury News where I likened this to Ralph Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed, which he wrote in 1965 about the automobile industry. And at the time, the automobile industry basically blamed bad driving on accidents. And it's true that bad driving is probably the number one cause of accidents. But not having seatbelts, not having airbags, not having automatic systems that make it safe to drive also contribute a lot to highway death. And the industry eventually, uh, largely because of government requirements, but some, some for marketing reasons, came along. And cars are a lot safer today than they were 
uh, 50, 40 years ago. And so I think progress can be made. Now, again, I think government has a role in this. Well, let me ask then. I mean, we could take that analogy with cars and safety. We could move that to guns mm-hmm. in this country. And so, and I'm bringing this up because then my question is, what kind of lobby do, because I think most folks would agree the NRA is quite the lobby force mm-hmm. in, in the gun safety debate. What kind of lobby power do these companies have? Or is this such a big um, national, international black eye that they won't try to prohibit the government from stepping in? They do have big lobby organizations. Uh, I mean, I've been to the D.C. offices of all of these companies, and there's a lot of people, probably not as many as the gun lobby, clearly. They don't have the kind of political fervent support that the gun lobby has. But I think on the First Amendment side, just as the gun lobby has its Second Amendment advocates, there are many and, and who aren't on the dole of these companies, the ACLU, the EFF. Uh, a lot of these First Amendment groups are going to fight for the right of all of us to use these platforms in a way that's unrestricted and, and therefore will support these companies in their efforts to keep the government from having any control over content. But we also have the ADL, which is a, a very strong uh, anti-hate lobby. So there's a lot of forces. But these companies are putting a lot of money into lobbying. But they're also, I think, a, a bit more subtle and nuanced than, than the NRA is in terms of how they're approaching it. Uh, I, I would like to think smarter, although it's not yet clear if that's true. But it, it seems that way a little bit. They're definitely not as involved in politics overtly. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you can see that even from the few people who have left places like Facebook and tried to run for office. And it didn't end up too well. Well, yeah. Let me and, bring that up because we're running out of time. And this is so important, I think, to ask you. Uh, and that is the attitude of the leadership of these companies. Uh, President Obama, upon leaving office, told Mark Zuckerberg, you got a fake news problem here and it's mm-hmm. infecting, it's affecting our democracy. He was kind of blown off, according to reports. Yeah. Mark Zuckerberg did not bother to show up to this Senate hearing. Neither did any of the CEOs of these big companies. They sent their lawyers so what does that tell you about the attitude of and again these are platforms that are are incredible i love using them they've done a lot of good in the world it, these are not bad products but what does it say to you about the attitude of leadership in silicon valley if you think about these companies and i know the founder of of all of these companies and ian may may also and and these were guys that just wanted to make things happen. They wanted to build a social network. They wanted to build a search engine. They wanted to build this this Twitter it was, you know, thing. Uh, and, and it was all about creating a product. And, and there's also a certain amount of male, youthful enthusiasm that went into this. And it's part of the culture of Silicon Valley. There is a certain kind of hubris in Silicon Valley. And I think these folks are learning that they've got to tame this, that they have to grow up and they have to live in a, in a big world, uh, cooperating with government and understanding that it's time to put their big boy pants on. Well, Ian, you're, you're the CEO of one of these companies and the Senate calls you because the product you came up with in, had, had an influence in the leadership of the free world. Do you show up at that hearing or do you blow it off and go to China? You know, I think uh, personally what I would have done probably would have been different from what happened. Of course. But, you know, the thing is that hindsight's easy twenty twenty, right? It's easy to quarter, you know, Monday morning quarterback these people. But the other thing is that, you know, the interesting thing that happened when the car industry came under a lot of scrutiny, you may remember that a number of the CEOs flew to Washington hmm. in private planes, and they got yes. so much of a hammering over it that the next time they came, they did a road trip, and they did all this YouTube around it and all that. So I think that if 
it depends on how the reaction is going to be, right? If we start seeing a real pressure on these companies from from the listeners here, from people online, from the from the Congress people themselves, to start actually being accountable and going to those hearings, then they're going to show up. Yeah. And in the meantime, yeah, they get to do whatever they want because no one's holding them accountable for that. I'm going to finish this before we say our official goodbyes with Senator Feinstein's comment. I've been very proud, and I know Senator Harris is as well, to represent this tech community from California. But I must say, I don't think you get it, that what we're talking about is a cataclysmic change. What we're talking about is the beginning of cyber warfare. Senator Feinstein went on to say, if you guys don't do something about it, we will. Oh, I, I, I have no question that, that that if things don't change, it's going to become ugly. And by the way, this is why these companies are already announcing a bunch of changes, because they want to avoid that. But I again, I don't, I'm not convinced they're going to be able to. I think Congress is going to step in. There's a line from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And these companies, I don't even know if they realize how powerful they are. They are enormously powerful. They are influencing huge decisions. And they have got to take responsibility. And as the senator said, if they don't take it, the government's going to take it for them. Thank you so much for your expertise, both of you. I've been joined this week on In-Depth by TechWatch's Ian Schur and by KCBS and CBS technology analyst Larry Magid. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. at 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at KCBS.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 